This episode was brought to you by the Social Fishing Membership, Australia's fastest growing freshwater platform, giving you the resources to catch more fish. Welcome to the Social Fishing Podcast. My name is Reese Creed. I'm a passionate angler and I want to share as much as I can about the sport we all love. On this podcast, we speak to incredible anglers, sharing a wealth of priceless knowledge, all to help you reach your fishing dreams. Thanks for joining us today. Now let's begin. G'day, g'day everyone and welcome back to another episode of the Social Fishing Podcast. This is episode 64 and I was lucky enough to sit down with Trent Freer and in it we talk about a whole heap of different uh, topics, especially the Murrumbidgee River, Lake Mawala and Lake Hume. There's a lot of tips and information for those three systems because Trent fishes them quite a lot and he was really, really good in this episode. It was great to hear him open up about the way he fishes those systems. He really gets into um, a step-by-step process of how he fishes during a tough bite and we use Lake Mawala as his example and he runs through what lures he would use, where he would fish, how he fishes when it's tough and how he breaks up his day into sort of different segments depending on how it's going. It's, It's a really cool concept and I love the way he sort of jumped in and explained that. So that's really cool. We also talk about Lake Hume and some Something that Trent says about fishing Lake Hume, and many of you may know Lake Hume is a very difficult place to fish. Uh, It can be very tough on the yellow belly. There is one thing in particular that Trent has shared that will change the way I fish Lake Hume. So if you are someone who has even visited it once or you plan to visit it at least once in the future, you definitely want to listen to the rest of this episode because what Trent shares is really, really cool. And you could also apply it to other lake systems as well when chasing golden perch. And it's something I'd never really thought of all that much. And we obviously talk at the start of the episode about the Murrumbidgee River, as I mentioned, because that is a place that Trent grew up cutting his teeth, learning how to chase cod. He fished the Murrumbidgee for quite a long time when he lived up that way. Really good episode and we actually kicked the episode off a little differently uh, because we share, or Trent and myself share, a pretty cool little story uh, that I won't go into too much detail on. Um, You'll be able to hear that in a little bit, but it's a pretty cool story all about catch and release fishing. Now, before we jump into the rest of this episode, I just want to mention, if you are new to social fishing, you want to make sure you head to our website and subscribe to our community email list. All you have to do is jump on the homepage. There's a big button at the top that says join the email list. Make sure you put your name on that email list because we send out so much awesome information to all of our keen subscribers there. All the new content that's coming out, new podcast episodes that are coming out, new videos, uh, new stocks of different lures on our online store like the Ignite Cod Furies, which I know many of you guys want to get your hands on, heaps of tips as well, and we send out a monthly email loaded with information, stories, content, uh, heaps of different information that will change the way you fish. If you're listening to this podcast to get more information on chasing fish, you want to become a better angler, well, that is another avenue of information that we share. So jump on, subscribe to that email list. And the second thing I want you to do is head to that website again and sign up and join pretty much get access to the Freshwater mini-series. Now, it's completely free. All you have to do is put your name and your email in You do that on the website, it creates a free account for you and you get to watch a full two-hour series, two hours of incredible content in a four-part series um, and it runs through Murray Cod, Golden Perch, Trout 
in that series teaching you the fundamentals of lure fishing. There is nothing else like that out there. You're not going to find anything like it on YouTube. I've had so many people run through that mini series, send me messages saying it's the best thing they've ever seen and it's changed the way they fish. They've learned so much. So if you're just getting into lure fishing uh, for freshwater fish in any of those scenarios, you might be an expert in rivers, but you want to learn how to chase cod in dams. You want to learn how to chase golden perch in dams. Go check out the freshwater mini series. It's a two-hour series. It will change the way you fish. So go do those two things before you finish listening to the end or the rest of this podcast episode, and it will make a huge difference to your fishing. So that's enough from me, guys. Without further ado, let's jump into the episode with the one, the only, Trent Freer. Trent, thanks for joining me, mate. I've got a fair few questions for tonight's or for this episode. Um, first of all, thank you for jumping on. But can we'll get a bit onto a story or talk about yourself and how fishing started for you. But the one topic I've actually been wanting to talk to you about for some time, probably three years, is that cod that you caught at Blaring because we have something pretty cool to share. Um, yeah, definitely. Because I touched base with you a while ago. Because you, can you tell me the story? behind that cod and then i'll share sort of the thing that i'm talking about and thinking about and how it's so unique so you're up there day fishing run us through what happened yeah so i was up there with me um with my dad um he's not like the the biggest of fishermen so like we when we go fishing it's usually bait fishing or trolling because he doesn't like to do much much else because he's not a caster yeah so yeah we um chucked on some trolling spinner baits some big like two and a half ounce, three ounce ones. And how long ago then, was yeah. that? Was it when, because you recorded it, was it, did that video go up just after you caught it? Was it that year? Yeah, it would have been like probably the couple of weekends after. Yeah, so it was. And it was in July or June, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, it must have been July. The video said August 2016, so, so you're saying like mid-winter 2016. Yeah, it would have been probably the end of July, yep. I reckon it was. Because, yep. yeah, we usually do, do something for my birthday. Yeah. And I usually share that with my dad. And then, yeah, I think it was a couple of weekends after my birthday. So, it would have been close to the end of July. Yeah. And then, yeah, it would have been a bit after that. I um, edited it and chucked it up. But, yeah, we just went to one of the favorite haunts, which is like the island that's closest to the actual damn wall. Yeah. It's like one of them spots that, you know, if you go there, you'd usually get lucky and catch like something half decent. So, yeah, we did a couple of laps of the island. I can't remember what the percent of the dam was that year. It's, but I think it was fairly, it was fairly full. Nah. Oh, oh yeah. Nah. Yeah, yeah. No, it would have been. Yeah, sorry, it was. I'm thinking. Compared to like the last time we fished it, because I think the last time we fished it was when it was at 20% or something like that. Yeah, so it was probably up more like 70 or something. Yeah, probably about, yeah, it's around there. More. Yeah. Because oh, I know it took us, took us a while to get around the island anyway. Yeah, because that year at uh, 2016, it rose real quick through that winter. I remember fishing it too, actually. I think it ended up getting to 80 or something. So, yeah, it would have been up there. Yeah. So, we just, um, I think around the first lap, we got a couple of hits and they sort of, they're on the same side. They were on the Taubingo side. Yeah. So then after we got a couple of hits, after the first like lap or two, we just focused on that one side of the island and then we were just doing laps up and back the front end of the front edge of the island. And basically, yeah, just sort of cruised along, got really close to one of the cut-ins of the island. Yeah. And then as you could feel the spinnerbaits hitting the bottom, just sort of started going head and out towards the deeper water and it was basically coming off 
you know, four or five metres of water into that, you know, seven, oh, it's pretty steep terrain there. So it was like, I don't know, maybe 10, 11, 11 metres of water mm-hmm. that the, the spinnerbaits would have been in, I guess. Yep. And then, yeah, they just got lucky that um, I had like – Actually, before we started using the big spinnerbaits, I gave Dad the choice. I said, which color do you want to use, Dad? And he chose the opposite color that caught the fish, I guess. So it was like, bloody hell. Yeah. <laughs> because you, you always catch a trip. Why can't I? Yeah. And then, yeah. And it's his own fault because he took he got the choice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then, anyway, so you got that fish up. How big did it go? It was 120 centimeters. So, yeah, it's my PB today. Still today. Yeah. It's a big fish. And I remember watching that video. So I remember that season of 2016. I think I caught two meters at the dam on plastics that year. And that was the year that plastic craze become big. Um, yeah. And you actually couldn't buy many on the shelf. So I remember the only ones available on the shelf was this, that Storm RIP shad. That was like the yeah. only plastic you could buy. Um, and then we were throwing the Furies as well. And I remember... I remember that year vividly because they were feeding really, really well. Anyway, so I remember watching that video of yours and funny story, and you know the story, obviously. I actually reached out to you three years ago. Ah, getting on three years this winter, three years ago. So your, yeah, would be, yeah. your fish was six years ago and then, yeah, it was three years ago. I sent you a message. Uh, it would have been mid-June. So I actually went up 1st of June 2019 uh, casted a morning session and hooked this monster fish, like massive fish, got it in, um, got some photos of it, put it back, didn't think any of it, went a meter 21. Yep. Wasn't until I put the photos up of the fish that a fellow messaged me and said, hey, mate, awesome fish. That fish looks very familiar. Check out the video that I've already seen of your video. He's like, go watch Trent's video. Watch your video and... Uh, it was hard to tell, but the fish, did you notice the fish had a real deformed or funny looking head? Yeah, and it had like that lip that was like sort of curled up. Yeah, it wasn't like a normal standard stock standard cod. It had some real funny shapes to its face. Um, it's, yeah. It was like stunted a bit in the growth and it had a mad lip on it, yeah. And yeah. I noticed the same thing when I caught it, but I didn't watch... I don't. I couldn't recall that from your video, but obviously this fella could recall it. And I tried to determine them based on the photo of yours and the photo of mine, but we took them opposite ways and it wasn't until your release video you could really see it and it was actually on the same yeah. side I took the photos. Anyway, there's so many similarities and it has to be. Well, there's, a, there's even a mark on the side of its face, but just goes to show how cool catch and release fishing is and you ever wonder does the fish obviously they do get caught again but you just never know but it's awesome to see that that fish you know if with proper handling you know it can go back happy as can be caught by someone else and you know what i mean like, yeah made my day three years later yeah totally like that's one thing about being a catch and release fisherman is like you're always i would guess wonder yeah like you try to do the 100 percent the right thing but then even after you've released it, you just always have like a, a little bit of thought in your mind. Is it like, did it swim away? Like obviously it did swim away, but yep. did it like survive for X amount of time? It's a bummer. It's a funny thing because we, we love and appreciate them so much and we love catching them. But you know that catching them, like if you were to say what's better for them, let them swim around or catch them, obviously catching them cause them a little bit of stress, um, you know, a little bit of harm. But 
and, and you feel for them, don't you? It's kind of a it's, it's a hard thing to juggle because we're so passionate about fishing, and it is important to be able to do everything the right way when landing one, so that it's an enjoyment for sport, but it's the best for the fish as well. You know what I mean? Do you feel that way yeah. too? Yeah, hundred percent. And that obviously, when you're releasing the fish, you're just like, well, I've got kids now. I'd love for one of them to have a chance at catching one of the fish that I've released in like the future. So like if it was like a 50 centimetre cod now, by the time that they're, you know, a couple of years older and they're fishing by themselves and stuff like that, they catch that fish, which would be X amount times bigger. Yeah, exactly. And the other really interesting thing to note was that fish hadn't travelled all that far because I remember messaging you and I could tell from your video as well, but I wanted to confirm where you landed it. And I caught him pretty much just the, the same island side of that second log bridge boat ramp. So if you were to put the boat in on the steep log bridge boat ramp and head yeah. towards the island, only about 50 metres, I caught it along that section there. So he's yeah. really, who knows, he could have travelled a mile in the three years. It'd be it'd be interesting to put satellite tags in one like they do with the saltwater fish. But I have a funny feeling just from the way I've fished blaring i don't have uh, any examples of other systems but i feel like they stay in a similar zone i'd i'd love to know if one's traveled from the wall to the top you know but i have yeah, a going feeling going up to june end and come back yeah i don't know i have a i have a funny feeling yellows yes i reckon but cod i have a feeling they do hang in the zone that's the only evidence i've really got of it three years later he's only probably less than a kilometer from where it was probably yeah. a kilometre, actually, from where... I wouldn't be surprised if they have their favourite haunts. Yeah. Like, they might move around a little bit, but they still always sort of come back to the same spots to feed or, you know, or maybe just a time of year thing where they just know around that part where they are, there's that more likely chance to get a feed. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, do, do you agree? Like, that... Yeah. That, that, and there's no reason in an impoundment for them to travel unless they're not getting food, there's no structure for them and it's not the place for them or maybe they're small and they're getting, you know, beaten to food by bigger fish. Then they'd yeah. move. But I feel like once they've... I feel like that fish may have lived his whole life through that sort of zone. Um, that was a lot lower. So the water was 39%. Um, yeah. So all those islands would have been joined um, and completely out. So it really, yeah. by the time that water drops, it's actually not as far for that fish to travel to where it was. Um, no. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting. And the other interesting thing is three years and one centimetre of growth. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. You wonder, like, if it's their first X amount of years, like the first five years, they go really quickly in, like, an empowerment, I suppose, just try to catch up and be competitive for food. And then once they get to, like, that big status... They don't have to grow as quick. I don't know. Yeah, I've talked to a couple of blokes, uh, fisheries blokes, that have studied them and their growth rates are completely different in different systems. And I know I'm getting off topic and things like that, but to talk about this because it's come up, um, they say that if they have the right scenario and food source in those early years, they grow really quick and then they end up being bigger cod. So, for example, the cod that were born at the very start of, say, the Millennium Drought. You remember how we had the drought through the... bit? Like, you would have remembered the Bidgee from 2000 to 2009 before the flood yeah. in 2010. It was always you can low. walk across yeah. it. Yeah, and it was yeah. the same. Like, it was low, low, low. And the fishing actually got harder and harder, I reckon. Like, it was really yeah. good in the early middle part. And then after five, six, seven years without big flush, like, it was low and didn't change because the dams were nearly empty. 
it it actually got quite tough. Now those fish that say say a fish was uh, the offspring of like 2000, 2001, in a river system like that, that fish would have had a very slow growth because it wouldn't have had the food, wouldn't have had the floods that it needed to feed properly. It would have grown really slow, so it might have taken ten years to get to. Let's I've got no idea, but let's say forty centimeters. When in yeah. a flood year, it could get to. 70 centimeters or 80 centimeters in 10 years and then yeah. because of that it only ends up growing to nice that i've heard some fish they've studied with like when they kill them and do the odorless that so they could be 20 25 years old and only 90 centimeters because they had a tough sort of life yeah yeah so the food source wasn't there and all that kind of stuff yeah but they definitely do slow down at the end to the point where they don't even really grow as much. I've heard they grow in length and then after that, they just grow in weight and size or they don't really, they can stop growing. Um, yeah. But I I don't know. Do you, do you know? Because you know how when you grow up as a kid, they go, oh yeah, cod, or you got those old historic papers and that cod are like, you know, 40, 50 years old. Yeah. I've never actually, I have to talk to a scientist, but do you know just from people you've talked to or your own opinion of how old they actually are? Because... Like a fish, I got I actually caught one the other day at Blaring. It had a tag in it. It's the first one I've ever caught that was tagged. In two and a half years, it grew from 71 centimeters to 85 centimeters. Yeah. So, still not much growth in two and a half, three years because I was talking to Dan the other day and barra grow from, there was a stocked barra that a bloke caught that went from 20 centimeters to a meter in two and a half years so cod grow so much slower they've got to be what do you reckon like those meter 20 cod they could be what 30 plus years or more do you ever see any dead ones floating around um i've only seen a couple in my my time and that's in like the ovens river and in my whaler yeah but not many not many no so it's not like they just, get, you know what I mean? Like, do, I wonder, do they ever actually die from old age? Because I've never seen, I've seen them at Blaring dead, and I normally it's only summertime. It could be the summer knocking them around or handling. Um, and when they're caught in the summer, they can yeah. target it pretty quick. But they're never like meter thirty, meter forty. No. Yeah, it's it's, no. it's interesting, eh? It's like I wasn't like you know when they had that fish kill down the Swan Hill and the cool and all that. I didn't get to see any of that. You would have seen some big fish then, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, and that would have knocked out a lot of fish. But anyway, it's just a, a good story I wanted to start with about well, catch and release, and you know how how things can happen, and a lot of the time we don't even know if the fish gets caught again because you never see it. But it's it's cool that that fish was caught by yourself and by me, yeah, both on you know film, so we could work out that it was the same fish, and someone's probably caught it before. So yeah, we had this one tree in my whaler. That um, when like sort of I got started fishing and then friends of mine started fishing after me, we kept on going back to that same tree. Yep. And it wasn't every time we went to that tree, but it'd be probably every second time we always seemed to catch a, a cod that was around fifty to fifty-six centimeters in that area. Mm-hmm. And we were just wondering if they were the same fish each time because they were always very close. Yep. But there always was a fish of that sort of size on that tree. And how long did that go for? Like how it went for it went for a good like couple. three or four years. Right. Okay. So I wonder, and you never you never like looked at pictures or took similar pictures to. No, nah, we never know. got that that in depth of it because yep. we we're just like thinking there was either just a, a snag that fish 
always seemed to be on or you know possibly could have been the same fish but yeah we never really got that in depth to it yeah it's interesting um because I've seen a couple of photos that a few people have been putting up of late of tag Moela Cod and they I think Josh Reed caught one and I don't think that by the looks of it they they this growth rate is really slow um so it makes you kind of appreciate, you know, when you do catch a big fish, the age of it. Like I've probably, like that fish I caught the other day that was a meter twenty nine would have to be older than me. Like, yeah, that is You'd crazy. Imagine, that is a long time to be swimming around in the water. It is it's pretty cool. It's, it's one of them things, I suppose. That they don't get that big being silly. No, that's right. And until the day you catch them, I guess. Yeah, um, and it just it just reminds us that we've got to kind of appreciate the fishery that we now have. Um, because not looking after the fish, we, we could see what damage it did. Well, we didn't see it, but we've got stories of what it used to be like. And then I guess the issue now is water management and fish kills can really ruin systems for decades. Yeah. But obviously all the, the slot limits and all that kind of stuff and obviously avid catcher release. Makes it's a done, difference. done wonders. Because like when I first started, I remember like you just – talk to someone at a fishing shop and that, and they just said, well, you know, he's uh, getting it pretty good now because 10 years before, you'd be lucky to catch anything bar carp. Yeah. Out of, especially out of the Murrumbidgee. But now if you go there, you don't catch anything bar. Basically, you've got to fight through the trout cod to get to the cod. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that would so have been the same 10 years ago, no way. Yeah. So, so the systems definitely bounce back. Which is good to see. Mate, let's jump in and uh, for the listeners who don't know who you are, who Trent is, can you tell us a story about how you got into fishing, why you got into fishing, what you love about it, where you're based, why it's such a passion for you? Yeah, too easy. Yeah, so um, I was born on in like Newcastle at Belmont and as a wee tacker, I'd, I'd loved being on the beach and stuff like that and we lived in a small coastal town. And there was an old fella called Wesso, and he used to walk past our house to go to the beach. And every time I seen him carry a fishing rod, I'd just be like a silly little puppy, and I'd follow him down to the beach. Really? And yeah, and my like, obviously back then it wasn't like stranger danger, and you knew nah. everyone in the town. Yeah. So I'd just follow him and say goodbye to my mum, and she'd just be like, "See ya," and they would go off for the day. And Wesso would take me down to the beach, and used to just you know have like one of the old Alvy. Real sidecast reels with big beach rod. Didn't how old you were? Oh, I was very young. It was like probably about seven, six years old. Yep. Do you remember it? Yeah. Yeah. I was only like really, really little. Yeah. And then sort of after then, um, my mum, her family were from young and um, they, her mum and dad lived in Cootamundra. So we moved back to Cootamundra because they were getting on. Yeah. And there's not much fishing to go on going on in Cootamundra. It's basically we've got a couple of dams and a creek. Yeah. And so we used to just catch carp as everyone did. Well, most people, I suppose, get started on carp because they're fun to catch and all you have to do is just get basically a stick, a little bit of fishing line, a hook and some bread. And you're usually on if you've got a few carp around. Yeah. And then, yeah, sort of as got older, I still loved coastal fishing and in the back of my mind I always wanted to go back to coastal and probably live when I got older. But as I sort of got a little bit older, we moved over to Wagga 
and then started working in um, a place there with a mate, and he was in like just crazy avid fisherman. His name's Paul Thomas. Yeah. And and um yeah, he loved Lake Marwala. It was like we started talking about fishing, and it's like yeah, I love fishing. I just I've never done cod fishing, so I can't help you there. And I still remember some of my first sort of efforts in the Murrumbidgee where I used to just sort of do it like get down there with a rod, put a big sinker on, just cast it as far as out in the river I can and just let it, you know, whatever the river did, take it with the current. And I never caught much. And then, yeah, just after hanging around him and him getting me like right into it, there's like, I think the first time he took me down to my whaler, I caught a, it was like a 55 centimetre cod on a spinnerbait. So that was your first cod, my whaler. Yeah. Yeah. And I was just instantly addicted. Really? Just, so the whole, was like, the whole thing, the whole, the whole lure fishing thing, or just the, the yeah, the whole lure fishing thing. I still, I still like bait fishing. Yep. And I still would go trout fishing because, um, like I had a another mate that loved trout fishing. Yeah. And I, I love trout fishing as well. So we we'd do that in between, but then you just once you start getting addicted to cod fishing, it's sort of hard to do anything else. So would you say you're having someone to show you this whole world of fishing? Because you, to you, you would have had you would have had no idea what it involved. No. Is that I still a remember the first step? rod? Yeah, the first because he got like once he once he took me there and um and showed me what to do and all that kind of stuff, or you know just the casting and all that kind of stuff. I was crap at it, but I went out and bought myself a rod and a bait cast reel, and I remember like in my head what he said was not what he actually said to me. So I ended up buying like a 12 kilo rod. It was only like a five, six. Yeah. And it was just like a, basically a, a stick yeah. with a reel on it. <laughs> and he said, it's not what he said. Yeah. Well, he's like, basically what he said to me, I just, I got it all muddled up because I had no idea back then. Yeah. Right. That's funny. And I rocked up happy as Larry with my new rod and reel. And I was just like, it doesn't feel right. And he goes, what is it? And then he obviously looked at it and he goes, oh, you, you. Goes, that's, what, that's, that's not what I told you. It's a broomstick. Yeah, he said the, the reel's all right. He said there's nothing wrong with the reel and the line you're doing, it, but just the rod, it's not the right. If you wanted like at least something a bit a bit longer and a little, a little bit lighter than 12 kilos. He said 12 kilos, we could go chase a marlin if you want. But uh, That's funny. So what did you do? Did you actually keep that rod or did you take it back? Or? Still got it. You still got it. And it was my first rod. I caught, I don't know, I reckon I would have caught a, a fair few cod on it. So, did you catch it, the next cod on it? Like, did you actually take it on that trip and use it? Yeah, took it for my first trip, yep. like the next trip after that. And then, yeah, I, I had it for a little while, actually. It would have been probably about a month I used it for, yeah. like flat out, taking it down the river and casting off the bank and everything. Did it? Is it like, if you were to pick it up now and cast with it, would you like go to cast and your little would go a fair way to the left or the right like you'd hook it because you got no flick in it is that kind of the yeah. scenario yeah yeah pretty much yeah yeah that's funny especially with something light like a little spinnerbait or hard body or something yeah do you know what it was um yeah it was one of them pen power was it oh, pen powerpoint yeah or something like that pens. yeah that's funny how good and then how old were you when he first took you uh we're in i would have been like 20 yeah. i reckon yeah. Yeah. And then where'd it go from there? Where'd it evolve? The, like, was it fishing with him for a bit more? Was it then? Yeah, we still fish together like till today. Yeah. Like obviously we've got families and kids now, so it's a little bit, you know, they catch up as much as you used to, but it was like nearly every weekend would be on the river in the Murray Bidgee or would be down at my whaler 
and just smashing it every weekend. Yep. And then how did it evolve? Because you've obviously got your own boat now. You've got all your own. You've got so much more gear. How long did it? Did you just jump straight into this passion that you'd found for fishing? And where'd it go? Yeah, it was basically just no turning back. It was the addiction was just overtaken by. I just wanted more and more and more. So then it just went to finding out as much information as you possibly could about it, like going to tackle shops and asking people, you know, magazines. Um, a friend of ours, he had a little tinny with an eight horsepower on the back of it. And um, I borrowed that a couple of times and he said, look, my son, it's my son's boat, but he's not old enough to drive it yet. You can have it until he's, you know, old enough to drive it or we need to use it. Yep. And then, yeah, it was just going out every day. And if I couldn't take the boat out, I'd just be walking the banks. So this happened, a lot of this happened on the Bidgee? Yeah. And from what years, like can you remember what, I'm just trying to line it up with, I fished the Bidgee through the same period. So what years would have that been Uh, from if you were 20, 21 through to? I'm I'm 40, 41 this year. Okay. So that's 21 years. Yeah, 20 years ago. So it would have been through the drought, through that drought period. So it was definitely, yeah, it was through the drought period. Yeah, so you remember it. You remember where where'd you put in? Like, did you fish west of Wagga a bit through through that water when you started to take the boat out, or did you fish around Wagga more? Well, if I was like, I was close. Like, we lived in right in the middle of Wagga, like we we're down near Bolton Park. Yeah. And then behind where we lived was the levee bank. Yeah. Because we we're right down near the river, and a lot of the times we could just walk from home and go up underneath the viaduct, which is a railway viaduct. Yep. And there was a little creek there, Marshall's, Marshall's. Creek. Marshall's. Jeez, I smashed some calf out of that. But we we caught a heap of yellows just in that creek. In the mouth or back up? Yeah, in the mouth. mouth. You didn't have to. You didn't have to go up the creek. Yeah. But just at the mouth of that creek there. I got a photo of a yellow in a when I was probably sixteen in a tank top and walking the banks. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah, it was a really good spot. Yep. And then other than that, like if you wanted to travel, it was always going. Out to one of Badgery or going the other way back out towards Berenberg. So you went both ways? Yeah. And do you remember, what do you remember about it while you were learning through that Millennium Drought period? Did you, what were your kind of sessions? What were your size of your fish? How did you catch them back then? Because it changed a lot for me when I started, when we first got the electric motor, it was just after that first flood of 2010. So I remember doing a couple of sessions when I was a kid with Forbesy and uh, with a couple other people when it was low and clear and it was only like a year until it flooded. So my experience on the Bidgee would have been very different to yours when you were learning. So what do you remember about it? Yeah, well, a lot of the times when we'd go out, we basically didn't have it. Like I didn't have an electric motor on the tinny. Yep. So it was mainly just tying up to wherever you could get a good position to cast back the few, like to snags or willow trees or something like that. And then you just chuck your bait right out and then you have a couple of flicks. And then when you wanted to change spots, you'd sort of drift and then have the motor running. So then you could have a few casts of things. You as, did a bit of that, did you? Yeah, so you could go back down to your next spot. Mm, I never did that. Maybe because the river flowed so hard, but yeah. Yeah, because that yeah. allowed you to fish a couple extra spots, hey? Cause... Yeah, so you kept a sort of kept the thing. And then if you know that wasn't working, you'd always just travel against the current because it was never good trolling with the current in the Bidgee. No. Do you remember? Too quick. Do you remember it being pretty clear through that period? Yeah, there was a few really clear years. Yeah, like even out towards Barrenbed, like there was a few times out there. It was a lot clearer out towards 
um, on Badgery and Aura. Yeah. But yeah, what, it definitely was clear water. What um? So what kind of sessions did you have? Like, do you remember any? Does any stick out in your mind that was a big fish that you'd found, or numbers of fish? And do you remember what you did on the day, or what made the difference? Like, what was a good session? How many? fish back in that period and did you did you fish it when it started to get high and flood after 2010 as well were you still in Wagga then yeah we, we were just sort of in the transition and moving down here right. but I'd still go back and fish with mates because I had a mate that lived out near Jones's on a property right yep and I used to go out there and like um get on his property and while well, he was working on that property I should say but yeah I could go out and jump on the property and fish from there around Jones's and like it didn't matter really if it was really low or really high. Still caught fish. Yeah. Did you uh, know when it was it lower? Changed? It was easier though. I'd have to say. Obviously, when it got full and high and it's pumping. Yeah. It's just a lot harder to fish because it's just trying to get your baits to stay in front of them mm. when they're not as active. Yep. And do you remember the size? Do you remember? Was there much size to the fish that you landed? Do you remember what the biggest one you've landed through the bidgee is? Well, through the Bidgey, like probably the biggest one that I could think of would be in like 68 centimetres. Yep. I, I did better off in the creeks. Right. Just just walking the bank. Yep. They said you, that you mean Old Man or the creeks yeah. down where you are now. Uh, yeah, Old Man Creek. Yep. I did better out of that than like, walking the bank than I did actually in the Bidgey itself. The Bidgey's a good... I would say it was, I'm really glad I grew up fishing it because it's a really good system to learn on, heaps and numbers of smaller fish, really good fun, teaches you how to throw spinnerbaits, hard bodies, you'd even get them on surface. I reckon I enjoyed being there and I guess you did too through that period, like it was perfect place to sort of learn the ropes. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, I was a very avid spinnerbait fisherman. Yeah. So like I'd probably throw a hard body every now and then, but I'd more more just chuck spinnerbaits of all different shapes and sizes yeah. and then trying to learn how to do them. I obviously have the occasion where lipless crankbaits is another one of my favorites. For the, chuck even in the river systems? Yeah. So how yeah. do you fish them without, like for people who are getting into it or someone's listening, because a spinnerbait, hard body, snag resistant, that would be my recommendation if you're brand new to it. But how would how do you fish the lipless crankbait effectively without getting snagged too much? Do you fish it a certain way, the retrieve or the way you rig it? No, well, you can rig it with single hooks, but I always much prefer trebles, to be honest. Yep. And it's usually just like your TN60s and TN50s and stuff like that that are small profiles. They've got smaller hooks, so they don't seem to get hung up as much. Yep. And you're just sort of trying to, like I always just try to target a snag exactly like a spinnerbait, but instead of letting it sink all the way down into the snag first cast, I work my way down with it. Righto, yep. So my first cast, I'll just let it sink for a second or two mm. and just bring it out of the snag. But obviously, you'd always want to be up in front of the snag, fishing back to it, because if you're on top of it and trying to bring it over it with lipless crankbait, sometimes I don't ride the timber as well, as like you said, and hard body or a... Uh, spinnerbait. Yeah, so you're not but, like casting over limbs or putting it in stupid spots, and you're, you're depending on the current. Like if it's got only the uh, if, like if it's your foot, second or third snag down after a big snag, and the water slows down very rapidly, and it's just like a nice flow going through. Yep. 
I'd fish it just like a spinner bait or a hard body. I wouldn't care if it gets hung up because if you're not in it to win it, you don't really get hit, I, don't, I believe. But, um, you just, yeah, being from a boat, you have I have a lot more confidence of throwing anything into a snag because, you know, you can get over there and get it out. It's when you walk in the bank and you throw something off the bank, you don't really want to jump in the water in the middle of winter. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I don't like jumping in the water full stop, but you're right. Um, but, yeah, I, I like to fish them sort of like down into the column instead of, you know, casting up there and letting it sink first to sort of cast it a little, or like, you know, depending on how fast the current is swinging into a sag. Yep sort of cast up current a little bit. So then by the time you've count a couple of seconds to get it un- like down into the water column, it's going to sink as it goes into the snag. Yep. And then you just sort of just let the current do most of the work for you. You don't have to, you know, wind fast or anything. You can just sort of click it into gear and use your rod tip more than your actual reeling. Right. Eh? Just basically you can just, especially if you're upstream of it, you can basically just, yeah, use your rod tip as what you move the lure with and you use your reel to just um, wind in your slack line, basically. Yeah. And slow roll, there's nothing fancy with the lipless crank. You're just slowly rolling it out. Yeah, so I've only had like a few experiences where, you know, actually making a, a ton of noise with the lipless crankbait has made the fish bite. Like there's been a couple of times you've been hung up on a branch and you're just sitting there shaking it because you're in frustration, you want to get it off. Yeah. And it's about your 15,000 snag for the day. And then all of a sudden, the fish will hit it and then take it off the snag for you. But that's rare occasion. But it's pretty rare. Yeah. Most of the time, it's just, yeah, like the the, the subtle, more subtle you can be with a lipless crankbait and getting it just like a spinnerbait, just working. Yep. It's usually a lot better than actually just, you know, chucking it in there and then trying to rip it back or, you know, do any sort of rod movements to to get it to yeah that makes sense especially in the river and then you know how you were saying you cast it in you allow it to sink a little bit roll it out and then go a little bit deeper do you find yeah. you get many on that first one or you actually you yourself uh, you get more when it does get a little bit deeper into the snag but you still go through that process so just in case there's a the logs actually quite high in the water column do you, do you find yeah. they eat it straight up or it's usually as you get it deeper a little bit closer on a super active day, it doesn't matter. Like the first one, the first time you'll cast into anything, even if it's not deep into that snag and they're ready to eat, they'll come up and eat it. Yeah. They definitely will. But on them days where they're not really, I suppose, I don't know if they're hungry or aggressive or they just don't want to come out of their cover because, you know, whatever reason, yep. you'll have to, yeah, you'll have to work it down in there somehow. Yeah. Have is there any from your experience, and we'll, we'll we'll stick to river systems. From your experience on rivers, is there anything that you can correlate? I don't know how much you watch weather, or from your own experiences, you've in the back of your mind, you sort of know what the answer is to this. But is there anything that you can think of that was really critical on river systems to get those really good bite periods? Do you can you, from your experience, know that it was like flow had a big thing to do with it, clarity, uh, temperature change, like when you're coming into a season, temperature change, uh, water temp. Is there anything that you can think of that was really critical that you remember that really helped those key bite periods? Well, usually it's like a bit of everything on a key bite period. It's like usually like water temperature 
plus water clarity, especially lure fishing. When you're fishing in dirty, dirty water, even when they're super hyped up, it's still hard to catch them. Yeah. And like, like the high and low pressure system, like I believe in it, but it's still not, it doesn't make me not fish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if it's like a, you know, high barometer, low barometer, or falling, dropping, obviously if it's still moving in somewhat way, it's better than it's when it's really slowly doing something. Yeah, but it's not going to stop you from going out. Nah, nah. I like to go on them days where it's really hard to fish and then try to figure out ways to get a fish to bite. Yeah. What do you find is a way to get a fish to bite when it's hard going? Do you think Super slow. Yeah, okay. Super slow. Start out with a big profile and work your way down to the smallest lure in your tackle box. Right. So you start with big because that's... Yeah, that's what you, everyone wants to do is catch a big fish. Yeah, right. So you, you, you always start off with a big lure thinking, oh, yeah, just in case there's some big ones around, I'll start something big and then... When you're not getting any bites, I always love to just downsize, downsize, downsize until you get to like some really small lures that are very subtle and they don't really do much. And then, you know, that's sometimes the best way to get a fish to bite is go really subtle. So do you use that process in somewhere like Mawala? Yeah, definitely. I'll use it in every lake. And then... Every every lake or system I use it in. Okay. I just... Yeah. So how about... Always... Sorry, mate. Yeah. Go again. Yeah, I always try to... Try that process. It's like just my process, I guess. Yeah. Start off big and then work down to small. So I'm going to give you a scenario. You're going to Mawala. Pretend you're at Mawala now. Um, you you know, the, the weather's not ideal. It's this time of year maybe. It's cooler. You want to start big to try and catch, catch a big fish or say it's a little bit warmer than now. Say it was like the start of May where there's the, a little bit warmer and there's plenty of small fish going. What's your – you're obviously chasing a big one straight up. What's, yeah, some, like, what's something you're going to tie on first and then what are, you, what are you going to change to as the day goes? Well, you know, back in the day, it was always like a big spinner bait, big plastic. But these days with swim baits and stuff like that, I've, I've really gotten into them. So it'd be a, probably a 200 plus mil swim bait. doesn't matter if it's hard or soft. What is in your box now that, like, give us a brand that you would actually go to throw on? What's one, if you're packing now that you had a thought for tomorrow morning, what, what would you go? Something... Well, this one, I've got I've got one of them them substitute swim baits on my rod right now from last time I was out. Yep. What's it? So, it's just a yeah, basically like a gantrel. What's it called? Substitute. Substitute swim bait. Yeah, yeah cool. Josh. Yeah, he he um, makes them up. I think where's he living? Mudgy, I think. Are they hard or soft? No, they're like pretty much identical to yeah gantrels, and he makes up like a two hundred. Like I said, 200 mil, 150 or 140 mil. Yeah. And then he has some glide baits as well. And he's got the sectional ones as well, you know, like it's got the more sections to it. Yep. So you'd throw yeah. that and how long would you throw that for? And then when would the change come if nothing's happened? And then what would you, what would be your next change? Well, mine's always about the time periods. So it's like that first part of the morning. I like that. It's when I feel that they're always more active in the, like that early sort of just as the sun, just before it comes up, so just after it comes up. So you get like, in my personal experience over the years, it's sort of like that hour and hour and a half where they seem to be really active. Mm -hmm. And then after you get to sort of 10 o'clock, you have another big like lull period where it goes really quiet. And I just don't, I've never figured it out if they like to just keep moving further away from where you are or they change their tactics and some of the bigger fish 
like to end up having a rest or they go up into the shallows and the flats. And what time is this between, do you feel? Between oh. after first light and like midday or not that much? Yeah, at least till 12.30. Okay, yep. And at this time of year when it's colder, you'll get another big bite window around that like one o'clock, like anywhere from like 12.30 to two, two o'clock, you'll get another big bite window. Yeah, okay. When it's colder. Yep. You'll just, for some reason over the years, I've, I've caught a lot of big fish around basically one o'clock. Yep. But it's, yeah, another big bite window and then just seems to do it again and we'll just... It'll die off after two o'clock and then it will pick back up again in the afternoon. But then it has like your, your, your greatest chance of succeeding even more is when the sun's got that 40 to 50 minutes just coming down to last light. Yeah, okay. And that's your experience everywhere or more just Mawala? Uh, that's definitely Mawala. Yeah. Yep. And in the, in the river... It's like I'd have to say it's very like especially in this the, like the ovens and around the upper Murray near Mawala, it's sort of the same there too because I've had similar experiences in the river and the ovens fishing the same times there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's interesting. I've heard a few people talk about that and that midday midday bite. So it's interesting you brought that up. Um, and that meter, I'm pretty sure that meter twenty came around like lunchtime. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty cool, especially for blaring. Like, yeah, it's rare. But then again, a lot of people don't put that time in. Then, so how rare is it? You know what I mean? Yeah, so, yeah. So it's it's an interesting thought, and I'm glad you brought it up about that that sort of midday bite. So yeah. So you were talking about there the bite windows that you look at. So what happens after that first one, and in that lull sort of period, what kind of lure are you going to change to? I know it could be different yeah, every day, but give me one if it was tomorrow. Yeah, I know I didn't answer it. So yeah, no, no, um, you're right. I loved what you went with. It was good. Those bite windows is yeah, it's that's excellent. So basically, yeah, start off big, and then I'll have at least a couple of rods with two different bigger lures on it. So if it's a hard swim bait and a soft swim bait or a hard swim bait, you know, spinner bait or whatever, but it just after about a good solid hour of fishing water, um. Consistently and like obviously concentrating. Yep. And I haven't had a touch. That's as soon as I'll just I'll just start working my way down. Go to it depending on if I'm fishing trying to fish deep on the river's edge or I'm trying to fish the edge of the river that comes up onto the flats. Yep. I'll either, you know, go downsize to like a hard body that's still gonna get at least that first initial touch once it starts dropping off the river. Yep. And then sort of if it was fishing in the middle of the river, like just on the bottom edge of the river or whatever it is at my whale, do the same thing, just a spinner bait, like a little 5.8, and I'll just have it with no plastic on it whatsoever. So it actually gets down? Is that the point of that? Yeah. And then, you know, change up blade styles. Obviously, you know, twins and quads and just your willows. Yep. And... I suppose one of my favourite, I suppose, style of spinner base is just one one blade. Right. Just not much to it. Yep. Just one blade. Usually size seven. I'm a big fan of just a single size seven. Yep. And that's it. That's a size seven. That's a fairly reasonable size. Hey. Yeah, yep. but it gives like gives the lure a lot of movement. Yeah. And like it, it moves sort of side to side, so it gives the skirt a bit of movement. Yep. 
and the, okay. the less blades and the less resistance with the plastic, you like it everywhere or you just you like it to get down deeper or you actually prefer it everywhere? I don't know, but like anywhere, yep. just like unless it's in really fast flowing like Murrumbidgee water. Yeah. Like we get that along how long too, like how long at the top end of the, like we are. It sort of reminds me a lot like going out to Aura. Yes, righto. It's like you've got really fast, flat water, like not very deep, couple of corners that get a bit deeper. Yeah. But gone off topic. Um, yeah, you're good. Yeah, sort of as it starts to warm up through that, you know, like nice early part of the day, that's when I'll, and I still haven't got a bite, that's when I'll start busting out like 10, 50s and 60s and, um, you know, McGrath vibes with a blade on the back. Yep. And using, um, you know, McGrath's got like his wide bodies. I chase cod with them all the time. Like they're obviously not like known to be for cod chasing lures. Yep. But they're just like a yeah, small little 60 mil lure with nice little sticky hooks on them. Yep. And then, yeah, I'll, like I'll just work my way as the water warms up from that bottom edge to the middle drop off of the river to fish in the front of the snags that are on the river to actually fishing up on top of the flats. Right. So that's what you do. You start sort of deeper earlier and then go to the flats or you start on the flats, go deeper and then go backwards. Well, it depends if I'm surface fishing. Yep. If I'm surface fishing, I'll start up on the flats. But if I'm not concentrating on surface, I'm, I'm looking for fish that are cruising on, along that river's like along the river edge yep. in the morning to whether they're just cruising along changing spots or they're actively looking for stuff or whatever. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Yep. Yeah. I'll just, um, I'll start vice versa sort of thing. But yeah, when, when I go on the flats, I don't like, I used to, when I first started like fishing my whaler a lot, I used to find myself just go on everywhere and I'd go from, you know, parts of the, like flats that are up the top end, you know, you can go 300, 400 metres into like 60 centimetres of water. Yep. And I found over a lot of years I'd still catch fish out there and even in the middle of summer, which I always thought was weird because it's now like really hot water, it's really shallow water. Yep. But the fish would still be up there. But after all the years that I've fished it, I just, I've got to the, conclusion that you will find fish up there and then you will find the occasional big ones that hide up there but just the concentrations of fish don't seem to be as many up there so your bite sort of you instead of sitting closer to the river yep which i like to do nowadays is like i won't travel like any further than maybe 20 meters or 40 meters off the river onto the flats yep and sort of work myself in and out of there when I'm flats fishing now. So that's your – you prefer that sort of zone closer to the river for whatever reason it is. You just find there's more yeah. numbers of fish or they're happier to yeah, fish. Yeah, you'll, you'll catch more numbers where you'll spend more hours out, you know, like the – like in my personal experience anyway, you'll spend more hours out in them, them flats. Even though they look good and you've got like – I can't resist not – if I see a, a lay down that's, you know, big and just lay in there, I can't, I just look at myself and go, I can't not cast that. Yeah. <laughs> so I'll, I'll travel like, you know, 30 minutes with the electric just to get to it. Yep. That's and then nice. you sit there for a while and go, oh, well, I'll just fish my way back now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But m- for majority of the time, you're talking like that northern foreshore or the Everglades sort of area. You're saying there's yeah. definitely fish there, but from your experience, you've found better success 
on the flats but close to that river channel and also on the yeah. edge of the river. Yeah, so if you stick more, like if you want to do that sort of flats fishing because it is pretty fun. It's just, just yeah, don't, you don't need to go right like right out deep in it and spend hours and hours yep. out into there. You just sort of stick closer to the river and zigzag in and out and it, it's a lot more productive, I've found. What's your personal preference um, on the flats, so that zone close to the river? Do you prefer fishing that shallow water or do you actually prefer fishing that drop-off into the river? Where have you had more success and what do you like to do the best? Well, I used to love like the flats fishing because – you know, you could just you could like bust out a spinnerbait or just something that you know that didn't dive deep, and you could just you know cast it a million miles an hour, yeah, like as far out in front of you, and then just try to you know direct it back through snags, yep. on the way back, and usually you get some bit of success. But uh, I'd have to say, like over the years now, like we went with Roger Miles is like one of the guides down here at Mulwala. Yep. And he's like got heaps of years experience and all that kind of stuff. And we went with him in winter and he was like obviously saying that, you know, this time of year casting for, you know, stuff around the flats because that's what we did at that time thing because we wanted to know more about it. He um, showed us using um, like jackal doozers and just casting them out into the edges of the river and they, they can be really productive. Yeah. So then after that, it just sort of opened my eyes up to thinking, well, it doesn't have to be a doozer all the time, but we've done really good and we're catching, you know, a few bigger fish. I think some of my um, wife's biggest fish came from, like, fishing the edge of the river with doozers. And then sort of after then, it just evolved into just trying heaps of different lures and, like, spinnerbaits and other size, lipless crankbaits and mumblers and um, instead of... You know, you're just traditional looking at the steep bank and casting to it and bringing it down it, sitting up on the flats and bringing hard bodies up and mumblers up and swim baits up instead of down and obviously on 45 degree angles and doing it, you know, in a, like a 360 version yeah. of, of a bank instead of just looking at a bank. Because, I mean, my whale is a hard spot because you just, you're looking at all these trees going, there's got to be a fish on that. Yeah. <laughs> there's so much timber and even more now yeah, that it's so you sort of you sort of get distracted because like you you want to fish like you, you you fish in the bank underneath the water that you can't see yeah but then you'll find yourself every like 10th cast casting up to a snag because you just yeah you get distracted a little bit easier but yeah fishing the the red edge of the edge of the rivers i've found these days especially in like the last probably five years i think has been a lot more productive than Anything else for me? Yeah, is there one fish that sticks to mind in Mawala? What's your What's your biggest from Mawala, and is that the one that stands out the most, or is there another fish that you really truly remember as your like best capture from Mawala? We got a meter seven at Mawala. It was a big fat meter seven. It was just fat as, and it was a lunchtime bite. Yeah, and you that was that? that was off the edge of the river using a doozer. There you go. At what time of year? That was in July. Yeah, okay, so winter bite. Was it a good bite like that day? Did you catch other fish or it was no. pretty slow? That was like get on the water, fish that prime time in the morning, freezing their asses off. Yep. And my wife was with me and then got to, got to about lunchtime and then, yeah, caught that and then nothing after that. It was just the one fish for the day. Wow. 
And do you remember what were you were you working the was a little working down that river edge, or were you working parallel to it? And were you- yeah, that one was that one was like sort of a forty five. Yeah. So I've cast past up into like a. It was just like obviously prior knowledge of watching the lake go up and down and being there when it has. Yeah. I just knew that that part of the river had like a little gutter behind it. Right. Eh? And then I just flung it as far up into that gutter as I possibly could, which is still like a gutter that it's not parallel with the deep part of the river either. It's sort of like a drain that drains into the river. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, I just I flung it right up the back of that. And then I was bringing it back. And then as it, the lure stopped, I just said to my wife, I went, bloody hell, I'm snagged again because it was just one of their mornings. Yeah, yeah. That I think I had about a thousand and one snag. Yeah. And then like as soon as I said that, it went from being dead stop to start swimming and I went, well, hang on a minute. No, I'm on. How good. And you knew it and was big? I just lost, yeah, I lost me, lost me um, shit and then yeah. <laughs> got the shakes and everything like that. And then I was, it was fairly well hooked, which was good. Yeah. But it's, I suppose it's still scary seeing like such a, a small profile lure just on the side of a fish's mouth. Yeah, I bet, I bet. That's cool. No, that's cool, mate. I'm glad uh, you were happy to share a bit of that on Mawala because everyone's got their own opinion on how to fish it. Everyone's got their own way of fishing it because it's such a unique fishery. It's not like blaring or a big dam where you've really only got the edges. You don't actually fish out from the edges. Um, yeah. So Mawala is pretty unique in that fact. So it's pretty cool um, to hear the way you sort of pick it apart and, and those bite periods, I really like that. That's cool. And I've heard of other people, other people I've interviewed as well, have talked about that midday bite period. Um, so it seems to be something that pops up quite a lot um, with a lot of yeah. people. So. And it's definitely in sort of in the colder months, the, the midday one works way better than in summer. Summer obviously is not so good. Yes, and that's quite obvious Yeah, as to why. Um You've done a little bit of Lake Hume as well. Can you yeah. run us through sort of, it's a tough fishery and for people who might be Albury based or local, uh, how do you go about picking apart the yellow belly in that place in the spring? Is it something that changes, you've found changes year to year? Is there something consistent about fishing that place? It- yeah, it's like early, early like September through to, I guess, like mid mid November, yep. They they sort of start like I like fishing the the Murray end, so I, I fish from Bona Reserve a lot, yep. Because it's sort of close to like it's pretty close. Like I mean they're all sort of similar, depending on if I go Victoria or um, New South. But the Bona boat ramps usually like the easiest for me to get to, quickest to get to. Yep. And then I like fishing the Murray Arm, I guess. The, the like the majority of it and they sort of as it's like really early in September they sort of like to be along the banks and with any timber that's close to the bank yep and especially if you can find some of the, like I've got a couple of maps of you know the Hume where it shows you where the river, the river actually runs close to some of the banks and if you can find some of them banks that have got the river really close to a point or some of them rockier banks, especially being so, like it's still the water temperature being really cold. Yeah. They are definitely, they start slowly like gathering, I guess. Yeah. And then as it builds up, they sort of push out to the trees a lot more the further you get into October. Yeah, okay. And then they just start schooling up. And if you're, 
ever been out on Lake Hume and you see all them tiny little bait fish hanging around the trees, yeah, that's the indication that the yellow belly are going to be underneath them. Right, so you can actually see the bait fish on the sur- like just under the surface. Yeah, like little. I mean, last what are they? Do you last, know what they are like little, just everything. I've, I've got no idea, but they're just like little bait fish, like tiny little. Yeah, I don't know if they're mosquito. I doubt if they're mosquito fish. They'd be like some sort of, um, yeah, smelt, smelt or something, I guess. Yep, yep. I know the ones you're talking about, and you can see them. But yeah, if you see them hanging around the shade and all that kind of stuff with the trees on the hume, you just know that the redfin and the the yellows will be hanging up underneath them. That's a cool. Like, that's cool. Hundred percent. And if you don't see many of them little fish on the trees, just move on because they're not going to be there. Right. So you find it to be quite common, like you yeah. quite commonly. Do you see them right through spring, or they don't come until like later in September? Or you've seen those bait fish early September? I used to, you'll see them early September as well. Yep. And they get thicker and thicker. And I guess once they start getting thicker and thicker, obviously the yellows and the reddies just get. Like they do the exact same thing. I mean, one of the one of the years I can think of, there's like trees in Bona, and I remember going around the trees and I didn't really see many of them little fish. And I went for a, a bit of a scoot up near the Wymer Ferry, and then as I got towards the um, rockier banks up near the Wymer Ferry where it crosses, yep, there was all them little bait fish, whatever they are, in along like the you know first meter of shallow water. Righto. And they were right up along there and then, yeah, started catching yellows again. So I sort of put two and two together with them little bait fish, wherever they are, there's going to be reddies after them and I suppose yellows. the yellows after them and, and plus yellows eating the reddies as well. Yeah, that's really cool. That's like going to the point where like what fly fishermen do with analysing where they're fishing in the hatch and what's going on and, and we can yeah. do that for natives as well. Sometimes it's harder but if you can get little clues like that, it can make yeah. a massive difference and it's all to do with food, hey. It's all yeah, food it's definitely a food source and then I've got um, LiveScope now and I've obviously seen it on LiveScope where you'll be sitting on top of a tree and you'll see all them little fish in a big ball Yeah, and the, the yellow belly on the tree will come up and start smashing the little bait ball. That is cool. That is really cool. Yeah. That's so sick. So, it's like one of them things, like it may not always work, but you can sort of put it down to like if you've got a better chance of fishing, the like especially the trees when it sort of goes late September to October in yep. Hume with them little bait fish on them. That's awesome. Um, On the note of LiveScope, um, since you've been running it, what's the one thing – that you've learnt from using it or one one aspect of fishing that it's highlighted for you that you can share with people that's something you might have known before and obviously on top of what you just mentioned about the bait fish, but what's the one thing that LiveScope's taught you, one sort of lesson that you can think of if there is Mine would be about using your lures. Yep. So you always thought that you were going slow enough. Yeah. But... You're just not. Yes, I so agree. As soon as you started talking, I knew exactly what you were doing. Um, getting because that. So just like when you're casting, yeah, when you're casting your lures and all that kind of stuff, and especially when you first start out in a day, obviously you're keen and you're concentrating on everything. Yeah, and you're you're getting your lure out there, and then you might start a little bit quick because you're excited, but then obviously you think, oh no, I'll slow, I'll slow myself down. I'll make sure my lure is where I want it to be or where I imagine it to be yep. in the water column or 
above that snag or whatever you're doing. But then, yeah, once you get live scope and you start watching where your lure is in the water column mm-hmm. and how slow you you have to basically go to keep it where you want it to be. Yeah. It is like, it is crazy that it's basically sometimes, especially with like big swim baits and stuff like that. You think like the, when you cast them out fairly far that they're going to come towards you basically parallel with the bottom, but they don't. They basically come up on a 60 degree angle. Don't they? Straight, yep. straight back out. Yeah. So you're saying that you thought they actually sat a lot deeper than they do. Yeah, and even with, even when you're using like one ounce, um, like chin weights and stuff like that, like it, you still got to go fairly slow to keep them like down, yeah, down on the bottom, and like using spinner baits and stuff like that, you know, just how it affects where you're sort of fishing, I guess. Yeah, oh, to add to what you're saying, um, I couldn't believe how quickly if you retrieve even just one turn too quick, it doesn't just bring it closer quicker. It actually jumps it up in the water column because your line, even braid, has that belly and you can see yeah. the belly and it's like it wants to follow that belly as you, as you wind. So it doesn't, the lure doesn't come straight back at you. It comes like in a curved manner sort of. It like if you wind too quick, it, it, it jumps up. Like it, it jumps up towards the surface really, really quickly and to keep it down... If once the lure gets closer, then depends on the weight of it, but even some that are really light, if you let it sink under tension, it sinks really slow, like yeah. heaps slow, like pendulums, but not how you think it would. Like braid, yes, it cuts through the water, but it still doesn't cut through the water perfectly unless you've got a massively heavy lure. But if it's yeah, something that yeah. sinks sort of at a reasonable pace, but still not like a brick, yeah, if you if you hold tight to it, it sinks much slower than free spool you free spool a lure and it just goes straight to the bottom but yeah as soon as you start winding it it jumps up i really like that that's yeah that's something that it's like changes the way it's like hopping it basically yeah so it's like hopping it with a rod tip but you just you're doing like a little bit of a wind so does it change the way you chase yellows too about how you used to think you you know you're winding and you're moving it and whatever i've found using it now my lures are moving so much slower because they're actually moving pretty quick down there yeah yeah it like definitely has slowed me right down, and like I even got to the point where I've, I've like if I'm throwing spinner baits now, and I've like some jackals and um, some soft plastics, I've changed my reel to like a five three to one gear ratio. Yep. So then even when I start getting you know like impatient or you know just not concentrating, I'm not winding as fast. Yep. Where if I've got your six to three to one and you try to go slow on that, you're still going faster than what you would be going fast on the other one. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, it's something that like obviously we're out there for that many hours and there's times where you have lapses in concentration and you're saying that slower gear ratio sort of counteracts that sometimes when you're not fully yeah. concentrating. Yep. Yeah. And then if I've got my spin rods, I just sort of tend to instead of continuously rolling it, I just like just you know give it a half a wind and then just let it do its thing half a wind. Yep. Awesome, mate. Thanks for jumping on. We're pretty well. We're pretty well. That's a pretty jam-packed episode. And um, thanks for sharing all that stuff about the Bidgey and Mawala and Hume. Um, yeah, too easy. What's the plans for the next little bit? We're coming into winter. What have you got on the cards coming up? You got any trips planned? You got any goals you want to achieve? What's the plan? Uh, 
Um, at the moment, my first goal is to get me electric working again. <laughs> it's, that, it's not working too well. That's a goal that you sort of need, but it's not very exciting once it's... it's <laughs> yeah. So, you cooked no, but, it, did you? Um, no, it's not cooked. It's working, but it's just making some really terrible noises. And I think it's the bearing. Oh, yeah. That's nasty. I had mine do that too. Just You can't yeah. fish with that. No. So, like last time I went fishing, I started, I, it, I think about an hour and a half into it, it was all good. Yeah. And then it just got worse and got noisier and noisier and noisier. Like, no, I can't do it anymore. So I got off the water. But um, I'd have to say, like, I don't know. I need to do – I was going to do a trip with one of my mates and he's – we're going to go down to um, Echuca. Yep. And just have, like, a little bit of a muck around fish. Yep. But other than that, I, I really wanted – before my electric broke, I really wanted to get onto my whaler again before it gets too low so I could take my son down and get him to chuck a surface lure around and see if he couldn't get something off the surface. Yeah, yeah. That would have been cool. But, yeah, I might have to do it around here and why the electric's not working. Mm. I might just have to take him for a walk along the bank or something somewhere and get him to chuck a water because it's really good once the – like especially around here and – um, some of the ovens, when it gets really low, it's a little bit more accessible as long as it hasn't rained. Yep. It just makes it easier to walk along the bank when it's really low. Yeah, nice. How old's your son? Uh, he's seven. Yep, so he's getting to that age where, you know, you can yeah. start to take him out to do that stuff. Yeah, yeah. He loves casting lures. Yep. He hasn't caught anything on it yet, but yeah. he will. <laughs> Surface would be a good way to start, wouldn't it? Yeah. That'd be cool. Yeah, good stuff, mate. Um, so, I would have to say that was the most unique and possibly the best answer about uh, upcoming goals, getting the electric fixed. That, I like that one. <laughs> That's good. Um, to finish up, mate, is there anything for everyone listening? Because, you know, there'll be quite a few people tuned in listening to this episode over the next few weeks. Is there any lesson that you've learned, whether it's life lesson or fishing lesson that you would like to share with people that might help them on the next trip or help them day-to-day with whatever it is? Is there anything that you have learnt and you've shared heaps in the last hour and a bit, but is there anything extra that you think you could add that would help people? No, I reckon like if it's for me, it's like I guess persist, persistent, being very persistent in fishing goes a long way, not giving up just because like obviously having a bad day, get out there again. Um, besides that, definitely like the slower, the better. Yeah. I mean, unless it's one of them days where you just cast out anything and it's getting eight straight away, the slower, the better to keep it in the zone. And that like sometimes can mean not even reeling with your, like, like don't reel with your real, use your rod tip more than anything else or let the current do the work for you. Yes. Yep. And keep it with like, you know, use the rod tip just to steer it around stuff. But yeah, slower the better. And then, yeah, I guess that'd be the yep. yeah, persistence and being really slow. Cool. Just don't rush stuff. Just, yeah, be very patient. I don't know. Yeah, patient, I guess. Yeah. Love it. Thanks, mate. Appreciate it. Thanks for coming on. And I'm sure I'll see you around. I saw you not long ago, actually, in the Gamby, but I'm yeah. sure I will see you on the water one day soon. Yeah, and I'll have to say, I love your stuff, mate. I, I really appreciate really like the what you're doing and all that kind of stuff it's going to definitely help people out there because obviously when we were when i was younger it was like yeah you had to read magazines and all that kind of stuff so the format that you have got out there now with social fishing it's just yeah it's awesome thanks mate appreciate it it's sometimes you 
you do a lot of stuff and you you don't hear from you know people or you don't hear if what you're doing is actually making a difference. So I really appreciate the, that, mate. It goes a long way. Yeah. We'll yeah, keep doing awesome it. We'll keep doing it. There's stuff out like that for people that, you know, when I first started throwing a big sinker with a big hook out into the middle of the Murrumbidgee and might, you know, stop people doing that. <laughs> yep. And if you, um, you know, like you had that mate that, or that fellow that you run into who took you out when you were a kid up north, like when you lived in Newey and then obviously you run into that fellow that you end up fishing with um, in Wagga, not everyone yeah, gets Paul. that opportunity. So, yeah, like not everyone has that person, has that help because to you, as you mentioned, it would have gone a massive way to, to show oh, yeah, you, definitely. like taking you to Mawala for the first time. You would have had no idea. So, not everyone has that opportunity and I sort of taught myself when I grew up a bit, like I went through that journey and I'm really uh, appreciative that I got to do those building blocks but as I was doing it, I was like, I remember fishing shows going, they're not showing us how to, like I'd love to go do what he's doing but I've got no idea how he tied that, what he tied that with, what bait, where he cast it, where he, like you know what I mean? Like yeah, it's yeah. it's like showing you something amazing and going, haha, you don't get to do it. Like you know what I mean? Like it's, So that was the gap that I wanted to fill. I wanted to fill that gap yeah. between this is the dream but this is how you can actually get to that dream. So... Thanks, mate. Yeah, hell yeah. And thanks for jumping on and sharing your wisdom and your knowledge and experience because that's the whole point of this podcast because there's more than just me out there to share it. Everyone's got their own stories and everyone's got their own knowledge. So, thanks for jumping on. Yeah, too easy, mate. Righto, I'll see you around. Okay, see ya. And there we have another episode of the Social Fishing Podcast. Once again, guys, I really hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and a review. Every single review goes a very long way. Now, another thing I want to know is if you want me to interview anyone in particular, if you want me to talk about a particular topic on this podcast, please send us a message and let us know. You can actually jump on inside the SF account and submit your listener questions. So, if you want us to answer your questions, you need to submit them there. But if you do have any ideas for people that you would like us to interview, you can just send them direct to me on social media. So, through Instagram, Facebook or through our email. You can also email me any questions you like at reese at socialfishing.com.au. I will receive your emails there. And just a reminder again, as I talked about at the start of this podcast episode, jump on our website, socialfishing.com.au, sign up to the community email list. You'll get stacks of content there and make sure you create a free account and check out the Freshwater Mini Series. Remember, it's completely free, two hours of incredible content in there that will change the way you lure fish, especially if you're on that new journey. If you're on that journey, that learning path, if you're listening to this podcast, getting information out of this, you get so much out of that as well. So, that's it from me, guys. That is another podcast episode done and dusted and I will be talking to you in the future. We obviously have a very special podcast episode coming up soon. It'll probably be about a month away or so, so there'll be plenty more in between now and then but like I enjoy, I enjoy every single episode. I enjoy sitting down and learning from every single person we talk to. For example, this episode here, there was so much awesome stuff um, to learn from and I myself feel the privilege to actually talk to all these people and I feel like I'm learning every time I sit down for an hour, hour and a half uh, with this incredible special guest we have because 
we only grow by learning from others and obviously our experience as well, but we can grow and we can learn so much more quickly by learning from others. And I think that's how I've built uh, my skill in the fishing world. There are so many things. There's a couple of things I might have come up with through experience, but there are so many things out there that I've learned from others just chatting, fishing with mates, and, and they'll do something different. You add that to your skill set. Um, talking to people online, obviously the whole social community that we've built around social fishing, I've been able to connect with so many anglers, including the ones I interview here, but also the ones inside our membership platform. We have hundreds and hundreds of anglers inside that membership platform and they all have a skill that we can all learn from. So just remember guys, learn as much as you can and you're doing a great job by tuning in and listening to the podcast. Thanks so much for your support and if you enjoy these episodes, please make sure you let me know uh, so we can continue to create great content for you. So that's it guys, you've been listening to the Social Fishing Podcast. My name is Reese Creed and I'll be talking to you soon. 